The million dollar question, how do entrepreneurs transition from self-employed to owning a business that turns a profit? My name is Chris Waters and this podcast has the million dollar answer. Welcome to CEO Secrets. This is Chris Waters of CEO Secrets. Super excited to have Tim Harris, the co-founder of Tim and Julie Harris Real Estate Coaching. Uh, for over two decades, Tim and Julie Harris have been leaders in the real estate industry, first as top producing agents, and now as the nation's most sought after real estate coaches. And uh, Tim, you're joining us today from your, your recently new uh, residence in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, that's right. Yep. Well, okay, so this might be a Zoom backdrop. It might not be real, but <laughs> that is what it looks like about a three-minute walk from our house. <laughs> so, Tim, how did you how did you get started in real estate? Like, what? I mean, twenty years ago, like, how did you and your wife find yourself in real estate? And I wish it was twenty years ago. It was longer than that. What was like? Was it a you know you read a book? Like, like what what, what was the turning point to even get you in? You know? Well, I'm 50, so I grew up watching infomercials from like Carlton Sheets and whatnot. So I don't know, you're too young to even know who he was. But he was this guy that would be on TV with his Rolls Royce, and he was talking about, he was selling basic information to consumers on how to become real estate investors, you know. But anyway, so I remember watching one of those things. I was just a kid, and I put the money together, and I bought his, you know, his collection of tapes. And I remember listening to those when I was a teenager. It's funny you should ask that. I don't know why I just remember that, but you know, I hadn't had that thought in forever. But Julie and I met in high school. We've been married for 29 years this year. We got married when she was 20 and I was 21. And we uh, bought our first house while we were still in college. And we were essentially, what, 22 and 23, somewhere in there. And we got into real estate shortly thereafter. Our first year in business, we sold over 100 houses. You know, with pendings, we sold 103 houses. And we consistently sold between 100 and 200 houses over 10 years. Um, we got into the coaching business. I'm skipping a lot, obviously. But uh, we got into the coaching business, honestly, by accident. Um, Howard Brenton, um, I don't know if you remember him, Chris. He was, yeah, you know, the st stars, right? That was a big contract in the real estate industry. So he made Julie and I stars in either 97 or 98. I don't remember. And um, we were at an event that he was doing, and it, he had maybe 2,500 people in the room, and Julie and I were in the back, you know, and wearing our required, you know, black hard written t-shirts. And I remember Howard did his, Howard was wonderful, you know, he's, he's you know, he's, he's passed on, but so he, uh, he was doing this, you know, normal Howard Britton routine, and then right before the break, he goes, and I'm going to start a coaching company, or we're going to start taking on coaches, you know, or I'm sorry, coaching clients, and it was a totally disorganized pitch, just sort of off the cuff, you know, he hadn't really thought about it, it was obvious, he said, so if you're interested in learning more about coaching, bring your business card up on stage, and we'll collect them at the break, okay, so remember, we're in the back of the room, and we saw like a good 75% of the room just get up and rush down to throw business cards on the stage. And I'm like, what the hell did we just see? We saw the start of something new in our industry. He started something huge uh, by accident. Um, and so then we were on break and then a couple people uh, came up to us and asked us, uh, you know, are you guys coaching? Is this something you guys are gonna do? And I didn't, you know, what the hell is coaching? I had no idea. We'd done shadowing before. Do you, you know, do they even do that anymore, Chris? I don't even know. Where someone flies in, they spend the day with you and pay you like 3500 bucks, whatever, sort of. Yeah. Um, I, there, there, I think there's people out there that do that, yeah. Yeah. So we had done that, um, but we had never coached before. So our first, uh, one of our first coaching clients 
was a guy named uh, Michael Gordon and his wife and him, Michael and Robin Gordon, are now, I think, number two or three with um, Berkshire Hathaway. They sell on the main line. And, um, you know, so from that initial, yes, I'll take on the, uh, you know, the opportunity to offer coaching, but we didn't know how to do it. And then we just learned from there. And, you know, that's pretty much, you know, it's not a straight line to where we are now, but it, that's essentially how we got here. You know, we had to learn a lot. And then we, we worked for, a, you know, a coaching company for a while, a different coaching company. And then, you know, we restarted our own coaching company actually in 07. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's basically how we got here. And so you published a book, um, Harris Rules. You were in, I see the hat for Harris yeah. Rules. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, um, I haven't read it yet. What's the, the premise of the book? Well, I'm not going to tell you, but it's a real page turn. You have to buy it to get it. <laughs> no, the, so Harris Rules, basically, the way we, this is essentially what happens when Julie and I have each had over 100,000 one-on-one calls well over, and this is the result, right? So when we take all of our, uh, you know, the best practices that we learned helping people achieve their results in their, uh, their real estate businesses, we want to encapsulate that into essentially what a roadmap, at the, you know, a roadmap, and that's really what this is. And if you read, we have almost uh, 400 five-star reviews on Amazon. So when you, was that your kid coming in to bug you? <laughs> Mine's gonna do that any moment now. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, it's my daughter's um, Eva. How old is she? She's three. Oh, she's Nothing, not going this is, this is the best part of shelter in place. It's like we're all on the same playing field nowadays because um, so many people are working from home. Do you notice how everyone's been forced to become way more informal now because of this? The, oh, you know, yeah. I love it personally. It's great. You know. So let me ask you something about the book. So if somebody's listening to this and they're curious of like, you know, how to get a book to become a number one bestseller on Amazon, is there any secret ingredients, if you will, like Tim Ferriss talked about kind of like strategy a couple different times of like how to launch a book. Um, is there, is, is there anything you, you did special to help um, improve, you know, how well the book ranked just to help sell more books? Just I mean, podcast truthfully, Chris, I mean, Julie and I've been doing this for so long that people, we have a, you know, I don't think we're famous. I think we're micro famous, right? So Julie and I are micro famous. If you're in real estate and if you're in one of the markets that we market to and have marketed to forever, you know who we are. So if you can have, it's the Seth Godin thing, right? If you can have a thousand people that, you know, give a crap what you have to say and you want to come out with a product, you're going to probably sell it to, you know, a good number of them, double digits, 20 or 30%. Mm -hmm. Well, the book I think is for sale on Amazon for 11 bucks. Um, And but. We, the book sells like wildfire because of our podcast. I mean, our podcast on, let's say on a Saturday, right, which is a low listens day, that might have, I don't know, 7,500, maybe 10,000 people listen to it. But on a good weekday, like a Wednesday or Thursday, it's going to be upwards to 20,000. So we have a lot of people that have been listening to us for a long time. And so the book kind of sells itself. And that's the reason, that's the reason the pub, but we got it published too. It isn't self-published, which is to answer your question. The other thing is you want to make sure you try to find a good publisher because they'll carry, I couldn't have gotten into the Barnes and Noble on my own. We had to have a, a publisher do that. Let me ask you something. The podcast, how, um, how long has your podcast been out there? How long have you been, um, you know, Four a year, going on five years, maybe. Did you did you find like a certain point um, where you guys reached a critical mass where there was this huge inflection point, or was it um, just very gradual, you know, incremental growth over five years? Uh, the, the latter, for sure. Yeah, that's the that's the only real way to do it. But here, here's the thing: it's fascinating. Um, 
ultimately the reason, like if you're going to be a media syndicator, right? If you're going to create content, this is content, podcasts are content, a book is content. The only real way you can do it is if your content doesn't suck. Because if your content is good, what happens is people share it. If, you know, if that's it, there's no marketing for this book whatsoever, none. And the, and the book still sells incredibly well. And the audiobook version, you know, we, we got an advance on this, right? This is a, this is the, a published by a, a publisher and they have, you know, having somebody professional that's working, helping you put it together is really critical. Uh, there's a lot of uh, self-published books out there and they're, some of them are great, but they're not as good as if you have a, an actual professional organization behind you. Like Julie did most of the work on the book. The concepts are both ours, but she was the one doing most of the work. And she had like two full-time editors. Like there's different varying levels of editing that you have to go through on a book. And it is insanely detailed. Um, but if you're going to do something, it's like a child, you know, once this thing is done and it's out there, you got to make it the best version of what it is because you can't pull it back. You can't say, you know what, now I'm thinking that chapter three wasn't as good as it should have been. Everyone who bought the book returned it. I got to edit it. So, you know, it's an incredible experience, honestly, doing it, doing something you're really, you know, it's, it's creating something. So you've, you've written many books, um, Think and Grow Rich for Real Estate, The Team, Real Estate Treasure Map, Part-Time Agent to Full-Time Superstar. Yeah, we give all those away. Those, those are basically all self-published. So you know? When it comes to books, like for people that are listening to this podcast that are, maybe they're not in real estate, maybe they're just entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, business owners. Sure. Would you encourage those type of people to publish a book to try to, you know, create credibility and like, you know, maybe authority and, you know, maybe even a potential lead source for them for their own respective business? So it depends what your goal is, right? So uh, as far as a book, um, a book that's for sale at Barnes and Noble and things like that does give you a higher level of credibility. So what you're, if you're trying to be a marketer, your goal is just, you know, you have to cut through all the noise that's in the marketplace. If, and I tell agents this, and I tell small business owners this, the number one thing everyone should be doing is starting a podcast, no doubt. Starting a podcast, the opportunities in podcasting, is, uh, it's amazing. I've never seen anything, well, there's just different statistics. I, I have some of them memorized. Because I'm studying this, because Julie and I are, we have enough audience now that we're, we're wanting to monetize it other than just selling our own products, right? And we've been solicited by a couple of organizations that want us to start running ads, and I'm looking at, so there's different ways to monetize. You can do like what most podcasters do. Like we listen to Ben Shapiro every day. Julie and I go on a six-mile walk around the Ritz-Carlton here, and we listen to him every day, because it's exact, his podcast is almost the same amount of time it takes for us to hustle around. And he does affiliate links. So he'll say, you know what an affiliate link, and your listeners probably do too. But then what's coming into the space is like Spotify just bought Joe Rogan Experience for $110 million. And it's, a, it's like a four or five-year contract, right? So you're seeing other of these big organizations that are trying to control like iTunes, right? Um, Apple uh, TV, they're creating their own content and they're only pushing it through their channel. So if you want to watch... If you want to watch, it doesn't matter what. You have to go to Apple TV for that exclusive content. Well, the podcasting space is starting to do the same thing. There, there's, a, there's crazy podcasts that you've never heard of before that um, they start getting traction. They'll have fewer listeners than, than ours will. And then like Spotify will buy them and put them on their platform or some of the others, big platform, big podcasting platforms. And next thing you know, they have millions and millions of, uh, of listeners because they expose those a podcast to other podcasts. Like right now you're exposing me to your people. I'm probably going to use this to expose you to my people, the whole thing. 
So, so if, I, if you're wanting to really syndicate messages that get it out at the highest, it's not video anymore. Video is too, it's too saturated. It's definitely podcasting. And then write a book and then start a coaching company. Tim, before you were um, famous in real estate and you were getting started with your first business with um, your wife and you were building a real estate team, um, what were some of your most effective uh, lead, like, wh like where did you guys generate your business? Was it referral? Did you have like lead generation systems in place? Like what were you doing back then when you had your business? Um, well, there really was no buying leads back then. So everything that we did was proactive based. We went out, you know, the, the traditional things. Like how did we sell 100 houses when we were just basically kids our first year? Well, we went after for sale by owners and expireds. We had no center of influence past client list. We didn't have any scripts. We had no training. I, I picked some, you know, we got some bits and pieces here. But really what I learned from that first year especially going after FISBOs, which, you know, to this day is still an amazing source of business for agents that are willing to do it is that you don't really have, if you just have energy and enthusiasm and you have some basic understanding of a script, you're going to kick some serious butt because most other agents never will. So we, and we essentially, we'd knock on doors at Fizbo's. Then we started calling expires. Uh, and then the business grew from there. And by the way, it was, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned teams and all of that. We did scale a team. Julie and I did have six or seven buyers agents. And I remember I'm um, fast forwarding here. Our, our revenue in our coaching and our real estate business always increased every year. But I remember it was like the third or fourth year, our accountant, his name was Fred, was sitting in our house in Walton, Ohio. And he comes over and he says, um, he didn't like, he wasn't giving me a business advice, but he was kind of calling me a dumbass. He said, this was your revenue and these were your expenses. And this is how much you actually netted this year. And then he showed me what the net was our first year when it's basically just Julie and I doing the real work of real estate. And we actually netted, had more profit that first year than we did when we were selling way more units and getting all the awards and the plaques and the trophies and everyone said we walked in water. So we pushed our volume up. Everyone thought we were real estate badasses, but we were actually netting less than we had that first year. Because we were, we were splitting, we were diluting it too much. And we did start doing postcards. We did start, you know, before the internet buying leads and things like that. And, and we got away from really with the whole reason that we originally got in real estate was to be, we didn't have it verbalized and worked out in our heads like this. But the reason was, is because we wanted to be rich where our money worked for us. We no longer had to work for our money. And we were moving further and further away from that as we started to follow, uh, you know, this whole team business model that Howard Britton was a big proponent of. And, and we were, we sort of knew, like we were at a Howard Britton event once. It was just the Howard Stars. We're sitting around this big table. There was maybe only 60 of us at the time, maybe only 40. I don't remember. And I remember all the stars were talking about adding team buyer agents, adding this, doing this, listing. This is back when, oh, you got to hire a listing partner. It was the new best thing since sliced bread. They were talking about moving trucks and all these other types of expensive things. And then Howard was, he had, Howard, he had his university classes where for five grand, you train your buyer's agents. And he did a great job. Well, then he wanted you to bring him back and he trained him to be listing specials and wanted him to bring it. So he was essentially trying to sell you into the idea that everyone needs to be cross-trained, which is the same sort of insanity that's taught nowadays, to be honest with you. And I asked the question, and I asked the question, uh, why would I want to, and it was, you know, maybe I was being a smart ass. I probably was, right? I was cocky. I was in my 20s. And I asked, why would I want to train my future competitor? And I'd never seen him so pissed off in his life. Like somehow... I was, uh, you know, spitting on the altar of some team religion. And that's when I realized in that very moment, I, well, maybe it was the genesis of that moment, I realized that, 
that model and that mindset wasn't about making profit and getting rich. It was about something else that I didn't want to overly associate with because it would keep me beholden to essentially this sort of transactional based lifestyle. Even if it was other people doing the transactions, I'm still beholden to it. And that's not how I couldn't see a way forward thinking like that. Got it. Do you think if you could have gone back in time and changed the financial model and potentially the organizational structure, it could have been more profitable than what you and Julie did alone? No, because I coached so many teams. I know the numbers of brokerages and teams and, and I, I see so much outward. It's in Texas that you're in Texas, right? They call it tall hat, no cattle. Okay. You know what that means. It's a rancher who has this big, beautiful cowboy hat who walks around like he owns a billion head of cattle. But the reality of that, he has a really nice hat, but no cattle. And in the industry right now, there's a, it, there's a lot of tall hat, no cattle. People what, that, why do you think so few people in the industry using the team-centric model are able to get to making, you know, call it seven figures in net income? Like, why are so few people able to do that? Uh, what do you feel like is lacking or preventing people from actually being able to execute and do that. And, and I'm assuming like this, so you were, you know, building your businesses like late nineties, early two thousands. And this is right after Gary Keller published the million dollar real estate agent. And there was this huge trend. I assume that happened. I was in high school when this was going on, maybe in middle school, <laughs> but like, I imagine that's like what, you know, got everybody like Gary wrote this book, the million dollar real estate agent. Chris, do you know where that book came from? I imagine studying other people. And, you know who he specifically got all the ideas from? I don't know who, but like I remember in the book he referenced a bunch of people like he learned from, and there was somebody in there that's in Houston, Texas, named Ronnie and his wife Kathy. Our friend answered my question. So if you look at the if you look at the original publication of the book, there's this black and white picture. I think all those people are hard written people, mm-hmm. and and so. Um, I don't want to talk too much about that, but the reality of it is all those, the ideas from the millionaire real estate agent all came from what Howard Brighton was teaching. Now, now I have a question for you and I'm going to challenge you. Maybe not so much because I got to know you somewhat and you're pretty, you're smart. So why would a brokerage push upon agents building a team if the brokerage knows from looking at other team members' P&L statements to your question, why is the broker motivated to try to influence people like you to build a team if they know ultimately people like you don't make any money from it? Not real money. Well, you know, I, something you and I were talking about offline is like, I never really saw the difference between teams and brokerages. And, and in fact, if you buy like the typical, you know, real estate franchise um, business and you get a copy of the operations manual, it's, you know, like you're in the agent count game, not the agent productivity game. And so, there, there becomes a law of diminishing return where it's actually disadvantageous for the franchisee or broker owner to like push somebody to have a really successful team. Yeah, because they don't make any money on it, which is, right. goes back to your question. So why are so few teams making money? So when yeah. Julie and I were selling real estate, you could still get 6 and 7% commission. You could still charge a processing fee of you know, $700, $1,000. And, and still, even at that, on the book, so when I look at someone like a team member, uh, and this, I'm getting tons of inquiries like this, because all these teams were um, essentially never profitable. To your point, you're exactly right. Most of these teams have the same shitty profit margins as most small brokerage, which is less than 3%. Most of them are making around 2%. Some of the ones where the agent who runs the team, the Chris Waters of the group, he's still selling real estate 
But if he takes his transactions out of it, just looks at the transactions or the expenses to support the transactions that are coming in on the buyer agent side, he's making no money. And, and I've had conversation after conversation. People don't think like that. The number one uh, Keller Williams agent, for example, in um, Wilco, right, just north of you. So I had this very conversation with him. He told me all of his numbers. I don't want to say his name because it was, you know, a coaching call. And I broke it down. Well, I'll tell you his numbers. It was 1.8 million. And so he had always been taught by all this Keller Williams stuff. Okay, well, this is what this is. This is your profit. This is your profit. And I asked him. I said, "How many? How many? You're still listing houses?" And he said, "Yes." I said, "Well." how much money of the 1.8 did you make from your commissions from listing houses? He had to look at a spreadsheet. It was very well organized. It was great. And then he told me the number. And it was like, uh, the essence of it was, is 100000 that he earned from listing houses was going to subsidize the other side of the business because the other side of the business was uh, essentially running negative. And that's the typical pattern I see with all these teams. As soon as the team leader stops doing the real work, which is with regards to work, working with sellers, and they start delegating it, their margins get cut in half. Now, Chris Heller, and I coached some of the people on his team back when he sold real estate full-time in San Diego. He did it right. He had all of his people basically. Um, now, he did, he did do some buying with leads, but his people were all working the phones. I mean, they would pound the phones. Monica Reynolds was running his team for a while, runs MAPS coaching now. And, you know, she, that's what they did. They worked the phones, calling physicals, calling expires. That's high margin work because you're not buying the lead. So why is it that? Do you think it's potentially like a lack of, number one, like the things I'm, and, and things I'm hearing you say, which I, I tend to agree with, is it's a lack of like financial modeling acumen. It's a, a lack of like understanding the organizational structure in terms of how to level up leadership and have a financial model to afford leaders so that you can exit the business. And then, you know, third understanding like how you, from a lead generation perspective, you've got to be very mindful of your client acquisition cost in order to have a profitable business and drive revenue and afford leadership so you can truly exit the business. And ideally, you know, if you're doing that and you're underneath the brokerage, it could actually be to your, detriment and it may be more beneficial to just be your own independent brokerage because you're basically the supervising broker anyways. Well, the most profitable people I've ever coached were the ones um, that basically, and you look at nationwide, this is true. They're the ones that focus primarily on like, so if I were to get back into real estate, I have people asking this occasionally, what would you do? And they're, the funny thing, Chris, is they're expecting me to say something different than we say in our coaching program, which is always really funny, you know? Like, hold on, you think it was this? Well, so I would, Julie and I would definitely uh, focus on working the phones and going after the pro, you know, proactive lead generation. Mm -hmm. um, we would probably not work with any buyers, truthfully. We would refer the buyers out for like a 35% referral fee. Obviously, if you had a seller that wanted to buy something, maybe then it would make sense. But if you, were, if you take buyer leads and you refer those out for, say, 30 or 35%, you're actually going to make more net profit than you would if those agents worked for you on average based on, you know, basic the numbers that are coming out. So to what your point is, I, I like what you said. It makes sense. But the number one reason I think that people are being seduced into the team model and, and all the other fallacies that go along with it is lack of exposure. So a lot of people get into real estate that have no, and I was like this, Julie and I, you know, went to college and we had a car cleaning and detailing business. I mean, we, we had to learn on the job. You know, it's fascinating to us. I can tell it is to you too. It's fun figuring out the Rubik's cube of businesses is, is exciting. But the reality of it is, is most people coming into real estate have no exposure. So they don't know how to look at a business model and understand really what the ramifications of it are. Well, 
everyone is telling me that I'm supposed to build big this, you know, build this big team, add more buyers agents. There's actual pressure inside uh, the different, you know, when we keep on, let's keep on talking about Keller Williams because it's relevant, right? Because they're the ones that sort of took this team model and took it to the next level. But there's, okay, you're, you had a good first year, now hire an assistant. Hire two assistants. Now it's time for you to build your team. Now you got to add six buyers agents. What about your branding? What about your website? <laughs> you know, what about all this stuff? And so that's what starts happening, fast and furious. And, and, the, and the agent's seduced by, oh my gosh, Chris, you're the greatest things in sliced bread. Look at all your amazing awards and your plaques. Do you want to speak at our next whatever? Da, 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 da. And you're seduced by it. And you're saying, well, oh my God, you're, they're basically feeding your ego. And they're pulling you along the string, but no one ever stops you to say, okay, bro, why are you doing this? What's the point? No one says, have you ever actually had conversations like what you and I are having right now where you really drill down on what the profit is? You know, it's, it's a sad fact that, so you can sell, I've had this, you know, we've had um, different scenarios that Julie and I modeled out on our podcast trying to drill down on this point is that you can have an individual practitioner in, say, for example, Columbus, Ohio, where Julie and I sold real estate, uh, maybe a, a, a one agent and maybe one assistant, and they can make $200,000, right? That's the total GCI. Their net will actually be better. Just that main agent with an assistant will actually be better than, say, the agent that has a team where they make a million dollars. The team, the agent that has the team with a million dollars will actually make less net profit in a lot of cases than the person who's earning, say, 200 to 225. And, and, and that's something that people don't understand. So why go, you can't sell your team, it has no value, so why bother doing it? Just to do more transactions so you can walk around saying you're the big, you know, that kind of thing. That's the insanity of it all. Um, the yeah. thing that I feel like I've discovered is there's been this roadmap people been, have been selling about a, you know, people use the word team, but it's, it's actually, it's just an organizational structure. Right. And the idea of the team is like, try to be more like they do it in corporate America with more specialized roles. And so I feel like a lot of models, financial models, strategies, you know, roadmaps, if you will, um, specific to this team centric business or let's call it corporate brokerage um, is are inaccurate and are flawed. And people have, you know, there's, there's actually nobody out there that has successfully scaled the team model in a profitable way and been able to help others replicate that success. I don't know. Do you know of anybody that has? Nope. Nope. And I don't know of anyone that's really sold their business either. Like really a real transaction, not just basically, you know, long based referral or agreement. So, yeah. so you're saying, we're saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're, if you want to be successful in real estate, I mean, Chris, you're massively successful in real estate. If you want to be successful in real estate, go where the money is. It's going to be on the listing side of the business. And the nice thing about the listing side of the business is that's where all the leverage is. Mm -hmm. It's not on the buyer side. And don't be seduced. Ask yourself what you know. It's what's what's your motivation for hiring all those buyers agents? Because somebody else got more plaques and awards than you. The whole thing's insanity. You're just being manipulated by your ego. And what does that take away from you? It's taking away your life energy. It's taking away your true potential. You know, it's taking away time with your kids. Because oh my gosh, I got to hire three buyers agents so I can kick Bob's ass this year for awards. We have a lot of people that watch this that are mortgage, title, entrepreneurs, technology, but um, specifically in the real estate industry, um, you know, for people that have no idea what we're talking about, you're alluding to agents that specifically work with buyers, and there's a lot less leverage available through people. It's your time. 
because it's a much more time intensive transaction. Now you could use showing assistance, inside sales, things of that. Yeah. So the one thing that um, I, I disagree with is I think one of the, the things that is, has eluded the real estate industry is, is a career trajectory path for agents. When you get in real estate, you learn listings, leads, and leverage. And so I, I believe that if you as a leader, ultimately, you know, if you come from a, the perspective of being a servant leader and like helping lead people to success, you know, ultimately you want to have a really clear career trajectory roadmap. And the reason Fortune 500 companies become so successful is because they learn how to help their people level up from a skills perspective. So in the in this organizational structure of a brokerage that's very team-centric and you have a lot of specialized roles, in my opinion, the advantage of um, starting people out as buyer's agents is because it helps them learn some of the basic sales stuff without like overwhelming them in a short period of time. For example, like contracts are typically skewed in the interest of buyers, not sellers. When you think about like, you know, how you work with a buyer versus a seller from a sales perspective, there's different things you have to master. For example, the inside sales component of working like converting a seller versus a buyer much different. The outside sales component of working with a buyer or seller is different. The market expertise point, you know, that's kind of similar. If you start somebody off that's brand new to real estate and you think that ultimately like your mission statement as, as a business is to develop people from a career trajectory path, because if they're successful, then ultimately the organization is successful. Then it's, it's less about, I'm not saying it's, it's not about profit because I actually disagree with you about how to make the buy side profitable, but I, I know we won't have enough time for that. But my, my point is, is if you focus on developing people and starting them off in specialized roles so they can, it'll help them lead to mastery faster. So for example, on the buy side, it's like first master inside sales, second master outside sales, third market expertise, and that market expertise component will translate into the listing side. So after you kind of master those three components, then it's like, then you shift over to the listing side and kind of level up. And then once you've mastered the listing side, then people can promote within your organization to become leaders or peer coaches to help other people develop. And but, but Chris, this is, the, this is the same dogma that basically the people have been saying since the nineties. I mean, you know, hopefully it's for a future friend. It's the same thing that not every, so again, my perspective is someone who's, you know, been in different corners of the boxing ring and as a coach what you just as a business owner i appreciate what you're saying and and respectfully i don't completely agree with that part of business being just create some sort of nurturing loving environment where can, people are getting jobs they're earning money and i wrote a question down and i'll ask you in a second but the moral of the story is, is most people getting into real estate they have no interest whatsoever or no there's no potential for them to succeed trying to do what you just said it's impossible because the reality of it is, is most of these people are, you know, real estate doesn't attract a lot of the you know, Harvard uh, business graduates, right? And, and so you're not going to, there's a vast, there's a tiny minority of people that will take what you're saying, which is again, sort of the corporate approach to how internal teams are structured. It's sort, it's sort of the, the dogma of the modern business uh, guru that's come up since really, arguably since probably 19, I'm guessing like 92, 93, that's when books that are started to talk about teams and all that really started to get momentum. And a team is a macro trend. And there's going to be other things that follow 
that will also, because I frankly think technology and whatnot is going to make it so the lack of profitability on teams could actually pivot and change, but we'll have to see how it plays out. But the question I wrote down is, and this is something that it's, for me, from what you were just saying, when I talk to uh, coaching clients like this, and I tell them this, they sometimes find this offensive, but it's true. And first of all, most people's dream is to basically have passive income and enough that they don't have to worry about money anymore, where, you know, where they're rich, where their money works for them, and they no longer have to work for their money. If you cut through all of it, that's ultimately, I get the personal quest and the enjoyment of helping develop other people and all the challenges and all that. But ultimately, the purpose of working, the purpose of creating a business is to create money. That's, that's really, unless you're running a nonprofit, you have to have a profit. And so when I, having had these thoughts for so long, it, came, it occurred to me that you don't get rich selling real estate. It's impossible to get rich selling real estate. You get rich from the profits that you get from selling real estate. You get rich from the profits you get from selling real estate. So if you have no profit because you're running, you know, two and three percent margins, you don't have enough money left over to basically reinvest it to essentially, you know, do other things to create create passive income, like the things we were talking about before you started recording. I mean, so so all, so what I wanted personally, and what I want for our coaching clients is, I love everything you said. It sounds good. It sounds good to say. It sounds good to hear. But it's too complicated, respectfully, okay? Don't, hopefully I'm not offending you. But it's too complicated for 99% of people to ever wrap their minds around. And it's not what 99% of people truly want. They want to be able to spend time with their families and not worry about money. They want to be able to go to Disney World and spoil their families. They want to be able to, you know, donate more money to their church, synagogue, or mosque. That's what drives most people. Yeah, I mean, in the in the real estate world, been very fortunate to be able to test a system model structure and and retention strategy to you know net twenty five to forty percent profits, and the business owner isn't you know a producing agent, and I've, I've done that in multiple markets. So, I think I I believe wholeheartedly it is possible, and I believe one of the things that's missing, and this isn't just in in the real estate industry, but this is more of like a global thing is there's there's a lot of coaching and training about out there about tactical things like lead generation or getting better at sales um, but it's you know like when I think about the, the real estate industry for example and, and this again probably transcends a lot of industries it's like there's this there's this huge lack of like leadership like there's not a lot of leadership training to like talk about like you know, what are some of the strategic things you can do to be able to create that opportunity for agents within your organization to be able to have investments in real estate so they can actually own real estate versus sell it? Because I agree wholeheartedly, you get you get rich from owning real estate, not selling it. And so- In other assets, not just real estate. There's a lot of ways to make money. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, as a young person yeah. in my late 20s, trying to find people that like, you know, in my late 20s, I'm kind of like, what, what does being a leader mean? Does that mean you're a great speaker? Like, what exactly, do, like, what does that mean? And like, where do you learn how to be a great just, leader? Just saying that, again, I resonate with you, right? I totally understand where you're coming from. But it's not a practical, tactical thing for someone to aspire to. Because what, when it's Jordan Peterson's The 12 Rules of Life, or whatever it is. Everyone should read that book. It's fantastic. Start with being a leader in your own family, right? Start being with a leader within your own community. Yep. Just do that really, really well. This whole idea that we have to have some sort of like, you know, take care of your immediate surroundings. Put your own mask on first, right? 
I mean, that's really what people should be focusing on being a leader. Because really this whole outward looking outside, and again, you're not normal. So, you know, as it pertains to the masses, because we, you know, we have a huge audience and podcast listeners and a minority of them are like you because you're like a minority of people, right? You're not all, not very many people think like you. And that's a compliment, right? Right. But so if you're going to deliver a message, getting back to something you asked a bit ago, that's going to, uh, that people are going to be receptive to, the message is going to have to be, urgent. It's going to have to be uh, essentially do this, act, take action steps. And the information you're going to disseminate has to be powerful and has to be practical. So when you talk about big lofty concepts, which everyone likes to talk about because they're easy to talk about because there's, there, there's no drill down on it. What you talk, and I know you're drilling down in your own business. I'm, not, I'm just talking in general, right? So when you talk about these big lofty concepts which everyone likes to talk about, it, for most people, they just listen and they feel intimidated because there's nothing, there's no takeaway for them. They don't, they don't feel empowered by this idea that my, like, so what you're saying is as a business owner, what my job should be is to create a business where other people can somehow build their, you know, employees, staff members can somehow discover their big why or some version of that. I don't believe that. I don't think that's the whole point of business. That's not my philosophy whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is kind of an interesting subject, I think, you know, happening on a macro level is this idea of social capital. And it's the idea as a, you know, as a business to be able to have a, uh, to obviously priority one, make a profit and, but also be able to have a positive impact on both your employees, your customers and your community. Can we level off there? You can't make a profit unless you're doing those other things. Correct. Agree 100%. Right. So, so being profit driven, having profit as your primary motive of being in business is not a popular thing. Me saying that is offensive to some people, I promise you, because they don't, they, they want to think altruist, altruistically. They don't want to think like that. But the reality of it is, is the profits you pull from your business, no matter what it is, is a direct mirror of essentially how well you're doing all those other things. But people try to do the other things before they actually learn how. It's like the agent who goes out and they, boom, got their real estate license. And the first thing everyone tells them is go buy leads, go buy leads. And that's what they all do. But they don't know how to pre-qualify the leads. They don't know how to present. They don't even know the damn market. They don't know how to you know, do anything. So people put the cart before the horse because they don't want to do the real work. Yep. And ultimately, when I talk to people in their 50s and their 60s and who have been some of the you know, huge names, and I, I go through their, you know, I talk about really personal financial stuff with them. It is extremely rare that some of these biggest names you've ever heard of before have any real have any real money. They have no exit plan out of their brokerages and their teams and whatnot because they've never saved it. They never learned how to build it, how to multiply it. Because why? Because they never had enough profit out of their businesses to actually make something more than just basically a continuation of the transactional based lifestyle. And they create what Julie and I call a golden cage, right? Nice country club life, two leased cars, they got a boat, they got to, you know, have nice vacations. You know, they live in a good part of play. Everyone sees them as successful, but they are maybe, maybe best case scenario, six months away from being completely financially destitute. And markets like this always play that out. And, and so when I'm talking to people, when I'm talking to you and I'm having these thoughts and Julie and I are doing it on a podcast, when I'm truly, when I'm actually thinking and feeling just to make sure that I keep my ego at bay and I also stay and tracked into the, own, in the message is I think back to all the people that Julie and I talked to uh, during the previous financial crashes, but the biggest one being back in 07, 
And I remember friends, uh, people we knew from Howard Brent, frankly, that committed suicide, people that got divorced, people that blew up their businesses and never came back because no one taught them the whole damn point of and being in business is not to do all the altruism and try to be a role model and all that. You have to do all that in order to make a profit. You have to lead with profit first. And if you don't, you're never going to have profit. This idea that one day I'm going to sell a billion houses, I'm going to sell 500 houses, I'm going to sell whatever it is. I'm going to have this big ass team. And then all of a sudden I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be able to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Nope, never happens. Because you didn't build around the idea of profit first. Hey, let's, let's shift uh, gears for a minute. I want to talk about the uh, technology stuff for a minute. Um, you touched on that uh, briefly about how that, that could really help change the industry and help agents be much more. It's exciting, no? It's super yeah. exciting. Sure, yeah. yeah. Are there any companies you're following that are leveraging things like automated machine learning or, um, you know, like, for, you know, for example, blockchain technology, I think is fascinating in the title industry um, or, you know, anything AI related, like are, what are some companies you're looking up to that are doing some really cutting edge stuff in the real estate industry? No, I mean, honestly, they're just, they're just iterating on the same ideas. There's not really very many new ideas that are coming about. It's just sort of versions of the same thing that's been around forever. I mean, the, the AI conversation, that's like the most hyped up topic ever. I mean, and, and QMAT, there's not going to be, there will be AI that performs simple functions, but as far as, you know, the real evolution, I think it's going to come in the expectations of the buyers and the sellers from the agents they do business with ultimately. That's really where it's going to come from. Like video conferencing, like what we're doing now on Zoom, right? That is, that's so fascinating to me. Julie and I are a podcast today. We talked about um, was Harvard and all these other Ivy League schools. They're all getting these really nasty class action lawsuits getting filed against them from their students who said, listen, your online experience sucked. You know, we've been having to pay you normal tuition and we haven't been receiving anything that should even remotely resembles the experience we should have been having. So what's that going to do? It's going to force Harvard, for example, then to really figure out how to do online education at a different level. Will they still be able to charge $150,000 for a two-year degree if it's all done online? No, which that excites me because that tells me it's going to open up all kinds of new things for entrepreneurs um, because there's a... You, like it's going to advance think it would have taken Harvard how long to actually build an online campus a real viable one years decades maybe never but now because of the coronavirus because of these forced quarantines you know with the craziness we're all experiencing all these ideas that would have taken decades maybe to, to play out are now happening inside months and when I see like I, I, and Julie and I talk about this on our podcast almost every day you, you let your mind wander and you start thinking about what is that what does that mean for the real estate industry? Well, there's the obvious low-hanging fruit things that everyone wants to talk about, virtual showings and doing more. Well, how about this? How many listing presentations could I give when I sold real estate per day? Two. And after that, it sucked, right? And so how many listing presentations do you give over a Zoom conference per day? A lot more. How can you get in front of more people faster? You know, how can you do, for example, how can you – it's all kind of – my mind just goes a billion different ways – when I think about the leveling of the playing field that the pandemic is going to create, um, I also worry a lot. Honestly, I worry for the all the bricks and mortar brokerages that are out there. How are they going to survive? Agents and buyers and sellers weren't going to their markets or their offices in the first place. They're definitely not going to go there now. And here's another thing that's fascinating: where we live. And I won't bore you with all the details, but how many of these, um, like, if, for example, real estate conventions? Just keeping it into our space, right? How are you going to do a real estate convention in the future 
with all the different social distancing rules, but there's even the real reason that those things are going to be under such threat is the liability that's going to come that if someone attends your event, if they get sick and all the, you know, there's no errors in the admissions insurance that's going to cover you in the event that basically you showed a house and that house and you brought coronavirus into their house and then all of a sudden the seller gets sick. And, you know, these are the types of interesting things that there's no answers to yet. I certainly don't know, but it's fascinating because there'll be something they'll be forced to birth from this that otherwise wouldn't have been. Does all that babbling make sense? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think some of the companies doing some really cutting edge stuff specific to real estate is the, um, uh, you know, you can, you can get these apps, um, you can download it. These, you know, there's a couple of different iBuyers doing this, for example, where you open door, for example, um, a few others launching apps and these um, lock boxes. So basically the consumer downloads the app on their phone and they can open up the lock box to see inside a house. There's a video camera to like, you know, make sure, you know, they put one at the front door, or the back door, et cetera. Um, and so it's like, you know, buyer, consumers can basically like self show the houses and they don't need realtors to, um, you know, actually escort them through the home. And I think it's brilliant. It's, it's awesome, you know, it's like, and it's great. It's amazing consumer experience and the real value for the agent isn't opening up the door. Um, so yeah, I think there's some really cool stuff coming down the pipe. Um, well, like I said, they're iterations of the old ideas. I think what we're going to see Chris in the next 12 to 24 months is we're going to really see the significant changes taking hold. We're going to really see what's going to replace the old technology with the new technology. But the first things to follow are the ones that were marginally holding on before, which is your obvious bricks and mortars locations. And, you know, some of these, the, you, you, the question you asked before, like, why aren't teams more profitable for the most part, right? Or you asked some question like that, which was great. And the answer versus say back in the nineties, the answer is, because the, the assumption is now that if you're gonna have a team and a lot of brokerages are set up this as well, you're gonna be providing leads to your agents, right? And they're just hungry, pissed off birds, always asking for more, more leads. And then on top of that, you got the commission splits, they're gonna demand more money. And on top of that, it's normalized now that not to get a 6% commission anymore. And some of the luxury markets we have clients in, it's 5% or it's 4.5%. So when you, all this you know, margin erosion, at the same time these expenses have been increasing, so it really has squeezed that business model um, to the point where if you're coming into business now and you, you know, think I'm going to form a real estate team, I would strongly suggest you sit with somebody who knows what they're talking about and you actually put pen to paper and figure out what the net margins are and then ask yourself, all right, is this where you want to be in five years based on the amount of money you're going to earn from the best case scenario of the model you're following? And then make your business decision based off that. Yep. Who's somebody you look up to in the industry outside of the brokerage you're affiliated with that you think is doing some interesting things on the tech side? So like, like what's your um, opinion? Like Redfin, you know, for example, has like crazy huge staff of developers, you know? Yeah. Um, like what's your opinion of Redfin, what they're doing, leveraging AI, machine learning, automating, you know, the offer process for buyers, like where's your head at in terms of like, who's doing some really um, cool stuff on the tech side, maybe not Redfin, maybe it's Zillow, like who are some of the people you think are doing some really exciting stuff and what specifically are they doing that you think is, is really cutting edge? I don't know what your definition of exciting is. Things like buyer scanning through Inman and there's an article about, you know, Zillow's new iBuyer program. I wouldn't read it. I got it. I understand what it is. Sure. You know, as far as what uh, Redfin's doing, if you think about Redfin's business model, it's kind of fascinating. It's just a big scaled up team, you know, you know where they have staff, where they have showing agents and they're giving them a portion of the thing. I admire him for doing it. And he, man, he's, he's an interesting entrepreneur, isn't he? You know, Glenn, and he went and took the company public and all the virtual showing thing you're talking about, he's actually trying to implement it 
I, I, I admire him. I like how he's soft-spoken at the same time. He's very, uh, you know, he's obviously one of these guys that doesn't necessarily know that he can kick your ass if you piss him off, you know, mentally at least. I, I, I find that fascinating. Um, well, I, EXP, truthfully, of all the things that are out there right now, I think EXP is the most, that's what excites me the most. They, they own a company called Verbella. And um, like last week, they had their shareholder summit, a normal shareholder summit. I read that they had something like 2,200 people show up total in a live event in Orlando. But last week, they had 15,000 unique IP addresses show up to their online shareholder summit. That's amazing. That was a whole freaking week, sometimes six and seven hours a day. And 15,000 people showed up to watch on a, you know, avatars on a screen do presentations. That's shocking is what that is. To think about the difference in the number of people they exposed to, you know, Julie and I, they had us present a couple of different things. And, it, you know, it's a bizarre experience at first. You're a little avatar and you're standing in front of this room full of, you know, sitting in a conference room. And, but then if you let your mind go, you realize that's probably the future of virtually everything. And it's like conditionally, like my little six-year-old, your three-year-old's too young to really probably remember much of this, fortunately, to be honest with you, Chris, because Zoe gets a little scared. But like I can see how Zoe's behaviors are going to change for the rest of her life because she was, you know, in her very formidable years going through the coronavirus. How she interacts with people, she's probably not going to be as, as demonstrative as she used to be. No more, you know, hugging and whatnot because she's going to have this programming in her head. And how are like all the people that are home-based businesses now? All the just diff everything in society is going to be completely changed. It's not just the six feet apart from each other. It's the the lingering things that happens as far as behavioral change. That's what's interesting. To live through it's exciting. Uh, earlier you meant you touched on iBuyers for a minute on Inman News. What's your crystal ball say about iBuyers? I know you did a podcast recently about it and I haven't had the pleasure of watching it yet. But what you know what's your crystal ball say about the future of iBuyers? Well, just for the sake of people that haven't been in the business for a long time, the iBuyers thing is just an iteration of we buy ugly houses, right? That, again, not a new idea. Um, what do I think? I think it's fascinating. I really do. I think it's like, do um, you remember, what's that big uh, auto? I always, I have to write this down so I don't forget. I have like a brain block on this. There's a publicly traded uh, big, they're all over Austin, where you take your car in there and they give you a price, they write it on a piece of paper and that's it. And what's it called? You know what I'm talking CarMax. about? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so CarMax changed the paradigm of the, of the car space. They changed the paradigm, especially of the used car space. Or, you know, you could go in there and basically just get rid of the car. You don't have to shop at a bunch of different places. People like the flexibility of essentially walking, you know, here's the keys, here's the title, I'm going to walk away. There always is going to be a percent of people that want to do that versus trying to get every last nickel out of what they're selling, um, a car or a house or any asset, really. It's always going to be people that put... Uh, just different priorities first, which is an interesting lesson for a lot of agents too. Very, very, very few people, even though you think money is the most important thing or profit from the sale is the most important thing or the lowest price is the most important thing for the buyer, very, very rarely is that true. It's other things, convenience, it's you know hassle factor, it's how easy you're going to make the process. So if you're asking me what the future of those companies are, I don't think it's in the version that they are now, but I definitely think there's going to be a future. There's definitely an iBuyer type solution going forward. You know, I even have the uh, sort of fantasy of why not, why doesn't someone come out with like 
an institutional investor come out with a mechanism so they can create a white label iBuyer so they can take it to somebody like you and they can say, Chris Waters, you now have your own iBuyer program. You're about to tell me you started it, right? <laughs> but, you, but we're going to totally back you. We've created a templated website. We've created a templated mechanism for all of it to work for you. And why haven't somebody needs to come out with that? So they can level up the iBuyer space, and then they put all the small and medium-sized brokers to work, acting as mini iBuyers. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the way EXP does it, which I think is great. You, as an agent, can go to the MLS and you can find a house, not even your own listing. And, and let's say there's some, you know, it might make for a good house for an iBuyer. Uh, EXP's got their own iBuyer. You submit your, you know, this is an offer. This is the property. These are the numbers. This is the spreadsheet. The iBuyer then decides to buy the property. You get paid the commission on that. It wasn't even your house. And then when they fix it up to flip it, you get the, you get the uh, realist too. That's an interesting way to do it. I think that some version of that's going to be in the future. But there will always be a percent of people that want to wholesale. What's your, what's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I can't, it's, it's so funny, something you just brought up. Um, I can't really disclose like something I'm, I'm working on. There you go. Um, Breaking news. But yeah, I mean, I, I'll share with you, like, I'm, I'm about to close a $100 million fund um, that is predicated on this idea of like, if you can essentially offer an insurance policy to the consumer that if their home doesn't sell, and they're willing to pay a premium up front for that, that you'll buy the property. And this is something that the agents can offer to consumers. And it's something that can be white labeled in a sense, like an iBuyer. And it's, it's got the possibility of um, being a, you're very familiar with the guaranteed um, sale program. So right. think about this as kind of like a quasi insurance policy that people can offer something they have to pay an upfront premium for. And then there's also a back end um, kicker if they do sign up for it and whether they take advantage of it or not, think about it like an insurance policy. And if after a certain amount of time, um, the property hasn't sold and they want to um, capitalize on that insurance policy, the, um, the, you know, the company will buy it from the consumer, the agent gets paid a commission and the agent will relist it for this company. There's also another interesting um, iteration of this that a close friend of mine um, is working on and he just, he literally, it's public, he just, um, he, he, this is on Inman, he just closed on a hundred million dollar, I think it was 104 million dollar um, round um, and it's called Homeward. And essentially, they're empowering agents and teams to be able to go to a consumer and tell them, um, we work with this partner called Homeward, and they will uh, buy the home from you um, if it doesn't sell. And they uh, will let you uh, stay in that home until you pick out a new home. And they will provide the bridge um, financing if you want to keep your house on the market and wait for it to sell for a premium. And they'll buy the house you want using their cash and they charge a 1.5% uh, service fee. And then they also help you, you know, refinance um, the property and you can actually move into that new house if you, if you want to, and you can rent it back from Homeward until your house sells um, or if Homeward decides to uh, take over ownership of it and, and sell it. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's really cool for the buy sell consumer, like someone that needs to sell and buy and they don't have the cash to turn around and buy. And like, maybe they want to move out of their house so they don't have to deal with showings like they have kids and stuff. Um, it's, it's pretty fascinating because, you know, you can use Homeward's cash 
to present an offer on a home. And a cash offer is going to look more advantageous and help you negotiate a lower price than uh, one with financing, um, in which you know they could close on in like five to 10 days. Are you familiar with Homeward? Actually, I think the guy who started that, isn't his first name Tim? Yeah, it's Tim Heil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I knew Tim Heil from... Uh either Howard Britton or something like that. I think I've known that. I think I either know him or know his name. Yeah, but I have read, I did read that article and several people sent it to me and it is a good idea. It is, again, it's an iteration of the guaranteed home sale, just putting that, just flipping it really. It, yeah. Those ideas are great. Mm -hmm. They See, I like that, honestly, better than I like the iBuyer concept mm -hmm. because the, you know, it's easier. If I were an agent selling that, that would actually be easier for me to sell than, hey, you gotta take a 20% discount on your house. Yeah, right. Yep. Um, so, uh, Tim, what are what do you see as like when you when you think about your business and as CEO of your um, your organization, your coaching, and all of the things you're involved in? Like, you know, what's your your big hairy dish goal? You've you've become famous in the real estate space, and you know you've got a lot of different verticals from a, a wealth perspective. Like, what's the next ten years look like for you? Are you still trying to push? Or are you um, still trying to grow. Like, what's the big hairy audacious goal of your of your organization? Well, I mean, right now we're growing. We're expanding. We're adding sales staff. Our business is actually because of the virus. You know, is taking off. It's fun for me to kind of see some of these snake oil ideas that you know percolated up since 2007, sort of wash out. Because agents are realizing they, you know, worked marginally well in the best of times. They're definitely not going to work now. Um, Training organizations and hard times take off. Just that's just a fact. They're you know that stocks for online universities and just different things. Those are great places to invest. So we're positioned perfectly to take our business to the next level for sure. Um, and yeah, and we're looking. Julie and I are looking at buying ranch land. Looking at buying. There's so many different alternative forms of investment. If you really want, to, if you want to take it out five years since you said that, I think we're going to be in a different economic. Uh, Something we've never experienced in our lifetimes is going to be, there's no way there's going to be an un, the, the unintended consequences or maybe the intended consequences of all these trillions of dollars that are being pumped up to the economy. It's going to result in inflation, um, and that's going to create its own set of problems and, frankly, its own set of opportunities. Um, we have always done well during times like this, and uh, if you look back in history, the greatest fortunes of you know, humanity have always been made during the greatest times of change. We're not there yet. Not uh, the economy isn't, but we're going to be. And again, these programs that have come out, I mean, we're, what, May 22nd, these programs have started to come out since the beginning of March, really. Those are only going to hold the wolves at bay for maybe another year. And then after that, you're going to see deflation. You're going to see a lot of deflation of asset values. And it's going to be, it, you're already seeing it. I mean, Lawrence Jung from National Association of Realtors said that the uh, deflation on real estate this year is going to be about 15%. You, long press release, like last two sentences, you can read it. And then he's saying in five years, he's predicting there's going to be inflation. I don't think it's going to last. I don't think it's going to take, uh, take five years. There, there's a, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars have basically been injected into the economy. Um, it's happened before back in 07. Where did the money go? It went, into, it went into real estate. It went into the stock market and whatnot. And that's the reason that normal consumer items, we didn't sense the inflation. People have never lived through inflation. I only I was I was six and seven during you know double digit interest rates back in the late seventies, and so I only remember people talking about it. When Julie and I bought our first house in the early you know twenties, people said, 
you know, congratulations, your interest rate's seven percent. You did phenomenal, you know. But now we see interest rates that are starting with a two. You know, you get a thirty-year fixed rate mortgage rate now for two point seven five percent. So, if did I did I hear you correctly? You your prediction is that um, asset values go down over the next five years, or in five years, that's when they'll begin going down. So, so again, I'm not an economist, and my crystal ball is no clear, no clearer than anybody else's. But mm -hmm. I've been. Uh, massively consuming this information. I really got interested in that basically back in 0405. So maybe, and I, I, it's an interesting, a guy named Jim Duvall actually turned me on to it, who I met at Howard Brent, who is a billionaire, by the way. He's the one that told me that uh, these cycles repeat each other, repeat themselves. He was a bit of a mentor or coach to me. And so he played out different things. That we, like, for example, I asked him, how did you become a billionaire? You know, stupid question, but simple. It was actually when I, it was actually in the late '90s when I asked him that question. He was just a farm boy from Indiana. He and he said no money didn't come from any money. He's passed away. And he said um, what Marianne's wife and I did is we would save a certain percent of every check. We would save 10 percent. We'd save 20 percent. We increased it as we paid off of our debt. And we were able to move our own personal burn rate to a lower and lower number. Our earnings increased, and we were able to save more money. And then we started investing in other things. That's the financial model we followed. Um, we've always led with profit, and we've looked at picking up opportunities, usually on sale, and, and then from that, we basically, we've gotten where we are financially. So if you're asking me what is pretty much baked into the economy right now, we're gonna have a mini boom probably through fourth quarter, and there's no, I cannot see, and I have not read or heard of anything, any reason to believe that leading into 2021, it's gonna be anything other than um, the playing out of what may be even called a depression, but probably a recession. It took us over 10 years from 07, let's say from 09 to, you know, last February, it took us that long to get the unemployment rate down to where it was. The unemployment rate now is higher than what it was even back at the peak of the last recession. That happened in two months. To think that there's going to be any sort of V-shaped recovery is insanity. 64% of all small businesses report that they're not planning on opening up again. So the devastation to the economy is going to be felt for at least 10 years. So if you're asking me what I'm doing, it, it, uh, I'm thinking about what am I looking to invest in, right? So you I, mentioned you mentioned buying ranch land, and yeah. I, and then you also mentioned about the devaluation of assets. So right. how are you timing the acquisition of ranch lands to probably factor? poorly, probably poorly, honestly. But to, you know when so you have to think where's money going to go, like where, where's the money going to go this time. It's going to go initially, we're going to see, and this is what's going to be, it's like a red herring. Asset values like real estate and other assets where people were putting their money first, those are going to inflate. But then what happens is that in the cycle of things, basically things then, I'm sorry, they'll inflate, they're inflating now, and then they're going to deflate. And the deflation, nobody knows where it's at. So the, uh, the Fed has been since forever, they've been trying to get inflation back into the market. They haven't been able to do it even with all the trillions of dollars that they're printing constantly. And they've been doing it since, you know, the QE is wherever they're calling it now. Um, they haven't been able to create real inflation. Well, they're going to get it now because all the, essentially, the, it's over $10 trillion and no, no upward cap has been set. They're going to keep on pumping more money into the economy. They're buying, they're buying all different forms of debt. They're, they even said, this is crazy if you think about it. They even said that if needed, they're actually going to go into the stock market. They're going to start buying securities. So you, when you go to buy your stock in whatever company, the price is going to be the price you're paying because the Fed was essentially buying the shares up. It's not the real market. We're in some sort of weird, you know, zombie land. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they're they're trying to prevent deflation. 
Yeah. What's your, right, what's, your right. what's your um, opinion of um, cryptocurrency? Are you investing at all in any cryptocurrencies? No, I think it's fool's gold. That's what I think. You know, but it's funny down here where we're living. Um, there's a guy named Peter Schiff, who you might know. He lives down here. We see him. Well, when the gym was open, we saw him yeah. every morning. And, he's very uh, anti. He is very anti crypto. Yeah. yeah, he's very yeah. pro gold. And so in the gym, right? Yes, in the gym, it's so funny. Um, some of these, you know, it's a beautiful gym, and some of these crypto guys will come up and start trying to engage in conversation. <laughs> and so I, it's so funny because he is so freaking smart, you know. And like, you know, I'm working out and I'm listening to this banter going back and forth. And what Peter does is he just throws in a little, you know, <laughs> and they don't even, it doesn't even register. But I was listening. There's these three guys, nice conversation, and they were trying to challenge Peter on his stance towards crypto, and he just really totally ripped the underpinnings off of their argument. And finally, they finally agreed that the only reason crypto is worth what it's worth is because somebody else, it, it's essentially like a shell game. And a lot of the guys in the crypto space, it would seem are, are proponent of the having and all these other things are happening. There's like, there's no real uh, historical perspective on cryptocurrencies that would give it any kind of staying power beyond the belief of what the last guy thought it was worth. And the, some, and the belief is, Peter's stance is, and it's probably true, is there's some big holders of crypto, and they're the ones that are the, the proponents of it mostly because they're trying to strategically get out of it. That's his stance. But you did mention gold. I think there's going to be absolutely, if you want to, if you want to essentially create inflation, if the Fed wants to create inflation, all it has to do is raise the price of gold. And it, the Fed can do that by essentially, um, but what president was it? Roosevelt, right? So what Roosevelt did is he made owning gold illegal. And then as soon as he took back all the gold, you know what he did right after that? Took the US, uh, the dollar off the gold standard. Yeah, actually, that didn't happen until much later. But he did, is he then said, now he controlled the gold. He then raised the price of the gold. That's what he did. So he's buying all this gold back for, say, $5 an ounce. And then as soon as he accomplished his goal, then he said, okay, now it's $7 an ounce. He controlled the market. And so that essentially, you know, we didn't go off the gold standard until next Something interesting about um, currency, generally speaking, fiat currency, is that it's essentially just a function of people's belief in the currency. Right. Which goes to, the re which goes to why we're buying land. Which goes to the reason why we're buying assets. That answers your own question. So something, um, I guess for the record too, I don't own any cryptocurrency, but I'm, I am fascinated by blockchain technology and its ability to um, you know, disrupt the um, real estate industry. Uh, well, first ever transaction occurred in Switzerland last year. A commercial property was sold on the Ethereum network. And um, you know, people bought it using, a, um, you know, using crypto. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's on a, a platform called blockemo.ch. Crypto is huge in Switzerland. I'm sure if you, you've been following. You know, ultimately, again, back to currency being a function of people's belief. I mean, the belief in currency uh, and, and the um, cryptocurrency is like, it's getting, I mean, it's getting high. Like it's, it's you know, when you think about where, you know, uh, Satoshi Moko or whatever his name is that wrote the white paper report on um, Bitcoin, you know, like that just happened. Like, you know, was it, 10, some odd, 10, 10, 11, 12, 13 years ago or some of that. And so like, you know, in 13 years or whatever the uh, length of time is, um, you know, the belief in this as a currency has, has risen dramatically. And, and um, you know, it, if you think about like from a technological perspective, like it's very difficult for companies to build um, platforms and to operate, you know, globally. 
when you have to deal with all the intricacies of dealing with currency exchange and, you know, just, you know, overseeing transactions, you know, it's, it's like super complex and difficult for technology companies to, to scale um, and just, yeah, deal with the complexities of that. So um, it seems yeah, like there's yeah. some, some really great use cases for, for um, crypto as an alternative currency. But you realize what the ultimate cryptocurrency is, right? The ultimate cryptocurrency is not Bitcoin, it's the U.S. dollar. The U.S. Yeah. dollar is in essence a cryptocurrency. It's all digital now. Right. Yep. So, yeah. so that's my, it. My personal opinion is I don't think the U.S. dollar ever goes away. But I, I mean, I do think that um, I think crypto will be an alternative asset. And I think there are these things called stable coins, which are pegged to things like the U.S. dollar. And I think those could be some like interesting things to leverage to, um, you know, be able to take advantage of stuff around the world from a technology perspective. There's a great book, Chris. I don't know if you've read it. You probably have by Jim Ricker. It's called a new case for gold. It's maybe five or six years old, uh, the book, but it's awesome. It's such, you know, I didn't realize what a nerd you are. (laughs) We're we're nerding out. I wonder how many of your people are still listening, (laughs) but this stuff. So I find this stuff really fascinating, but if you actually go, if you can listen to read his book, it talks about how the U S became the global, you know, the petrodollar, how it became the U S the the global reserve currency after world war two. And you talk about how the central bankers, JP Morgan, and all these people met at this place called the Jekyll Island off, you know, uh, off Georgia, you know, you, you read all this, it's like, no way is that real history, but it is. And in a, in people don't realize that, you know, what you're saying, currency, us dollars, all of it, it, we don't, the, the us feds, not even, it's not even really a, it's not a public institution. It's a private thing owned by banks. And so our money is actually managed by the sort of third party that's sort of, you know, loosely controlled by us. You know, that's, I think that's really fascinating, but I don't think like, so Peter thinks that gold uh, is going to become the new currency. And he thinks in essence, and he's actually doing this, that you, you can put your gold in Peter's bank. He's forming a bank and then you'll get a credit card. And when you spend money from your credit card, it actually results in some of your gold or your silver being sold. Right. And then Jim Records believes there's going to be um, a, he doesn't believe, so Peter's thinking gold, U.S. dollar on his debt bet. Jim thinks there's going to be a basket of currencies, which is really interesting. Um, and he said that essentially this is what, um, long story short, so the basket of currencies would be some U.S. dollars, you know, some yuan, some, you know, all euros, all this, and that would then form a new currency. So the new currency would be backed by all the fiat currencies of the old currencies. But really, why is anything worth what anything is, really, at the end of the day? Why is a house worth what a house is? How much of the demand for real estate has been fake, basically predicated on people's ability to borrow money? And how much of that borrowed money just comes from more fake money? Have you ever thought about that? It's interesting. Well, I think, you, I think if you um, think about the, the debt the U.S. government has, what is it, way north of $20 trillion now, you have, to, you, know, like, you have to ask yourself, is it really debt if they don't actually plan on paying it back yeah, and it's so interesting how i remember when i was growing up the debt clock and how much you know you it, it was like a political thing we have to pay off the debt that's never going to get paid off mm-hmm. because as a percent of gdp and they have this new formula it's like ebit accounting you know where they're trying to figure out a different way to cover up the fact they're not making any profit but when you look at essentially the, all that, the debt's never going to get paid back. And the U.S. will never default on its debt. It's going to inflate its way out of the, the debt. It's going to print more dollars. 
You know, it's going to, that's what, that's what we're doing. That's what our country is doing. It's going to inflate its way. And if you go back in history, when the U.S. has had debt before, usually after wars, that's what they did. More money was printed, inflated its way out of the debt, paid the debt off with basically having printed more money. Can you imagine if you had the printing press to essentially, you know, print money anytime you wanted to with just congressional approval or now it's not even with that? It's, it's astonishing. And so, like, you ask yourself, what would prevent the U.S. currency from failing? And people say, well, it's the cleanest, ham the cleanest shirt and a hamper full of dirty shirts. Well, it's also because of military. It's also because essentially the, the fact that we have the, you know, strongest country in the history, all this stuff. And so I think you're right, and I agree with you. I don't think the U.S. dollar is going to go away. But I do think there's going to be a lot of pain that's going to be experienced. You, have you ever heard of the debt jubilee? Do you want to go seriously nerdy? Yeah. Now, how cool is that? Do you know where that started? Do you know Do you know the history of the debt jubilee? Um, I do not. Oh, you're Googling it. That's no fair. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, it actually had, you, you can, you're reading, I can tell. But yeah. every 50 to 75 years, all debt was forgiven. Huh. Now think about that. What if we're going to have, what, who, how long is it going to take for some politician to come up with saying, you know what? Are you a subscriber to Stanbury Research? I've read, no, I don't get his newsletter. I don't get the newsletter. Okay. But I know what you're talking about. They've, they've been um, talking about the debt jubilee. Recently. Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, hey, Tim, we are way over on time. And this you're point. right. Who the hell knows who's still watching at this point? But um, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation, to say the least. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to contact you about coaching or anything? Well, just let me put my coaching hat on just for a second, okay? So the one thing I – we end up almost every podcast and everything we're saying, we say this because, uh, again, emotionally, I don't want people to uh, experience hardship and they don't realize that a lot of the things they're doing or what they're thinking, but mostly what they're doing is going to lead to severe hardship. So ask yourself if you're in any way – waiting and hoping things return to normal like they were just 90 days ago which is insane because if you are if you're in that mental emotional state of waiting for things to return to normal you're not automatically that means that you're not moving forward you're not actually in the actions of learning what this new market is going to require the conversation the nerd ball conversation you and i just had that's part of it because from these sort of you know unassociated thoughts can come a really brilliant idea right that's the reason I think you and I were bouncing off each other because it's kind of fun. Your brain's going here, it's going there. But for a practical, tactical standpoint, what everyone has to be focused on right now is survival. That's the number one thing that everyone has to be doing. You have to survive. If you cannot survive without the government lifelines, as soon as those run their course, the latter part of this year, you're done. So whatever you're doing now, real estate practitioners or small business owners, You've got to retool. You've got to stop hoping and praying things are going to return to normal. You've got to embrace what this new market has to give. You've got to make it so – and start with the idea that everything that worked for you in the past market, it does not matter. It, it, this is not a true statement completely, obviously, but start with this. Everything that you were doing before, none of it's going to work in the market that's going to come. And if you don't start with that humbling thought, then you're not going to leave room for new ideas. You're going to say, damn it, I'm just going to go back to buying buyer leads and I'm going to double down on my marketing. I'm going to drop off more pumpkin pies in November. You're just going to go back to the exact same things you were doing before. You're not going to actually expose yourself to new ways of thinking. And thus, you're going to experience unnecessary pain and hardship that's going to could adversely affect the rest of your life. So for everyone who's listening, that's what I would strongly encourage all of them to do. 
Just know that everyone, you can get through this. You are literally designed to adapt to change. Don't resist that natural progression that your body and your soul wants to have. I'm not getting new agey or mindset again. Yes, Nugget, we all need to learn to adapt. And the faster we can adapt, the more prosperity we're going to have. Exactly, man. The greatest fortunes in the history of humanity have always been made during the greatest times of change. So if people want to find us, it's uh, timandjulieharris.com. Our podcast, you can just Google it. It's all over the internet. It's uh, Real Estate Coaching Radio. Um, yeah, those are the two prominent ways. Cool. Tim, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. This has been great. Cool. Want more CEO secrets? If so, you can get a free copy of my book, The Million Dollar Real Estate Team at www.themilliondollarrealestateteam.com for free. Inside this book, you'll find my top secrets that we've used to net $1 million in just three years.